first lecture, part two of On the Future of Our Educational Institutions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aaron Rivera. On the Future of Our Educational Institutions by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by J. M. Kennedy. First Lecture, Part 2. The philosopher was silent. His companion, however, said, Our promises and plans unfortunately compel us not only to remain, but also to spend the same hour on the spot you have selected. It is left for us to decide whether fate or perhaps a spirit has been responsible for this extraordinary coincidence. Besides, my friend, said the philosopher, I am not half so displeased with these warlike youngsters as I was. Did you observe how quiet they were a moment ago when we were contemplating the sun? They neither spoke nor smoked. They stood stone still. I believe they meditated. Turning suddenly our direction, he said, Were you meditating? Just tell me about it as we proceed in the direction of our common trysting place. We took a few steps together and went down the slope into a warm, balmy air of the woods where it was already much darker. On the way, my friend openly revealed his thoughts to the philosopher. He confessed how much he had feared that perhaps today, for the first time, a philosopher was about to stand in the way of his philosophizing. The sage laughed. What? You were afraid a philosopher would prevent your philosophizing? This might easily happen, and you have not yet experienced such a thing? Has your university life been free from experience? You surely attend lectures on philosophy. The question discomfited us, for, as a matter of fact, there had been no element of philosophy in our education up to that time. In those days, moreover, we fondly imagined that everybody who held the post and possessed the dignity of a philosopher must perforce be one. We were inexperienced and badly informed. We frankly admitted that we had not yet belonged to any philosophical college, but that we would certainly make up for lost time. Then what? he asked. Did you mean when you spoke of philosophizing? said I. We were at a loss for a definition, but to all intents and purposes we meant this, that we wished to make earnest endeavors to consider the best possible means of becoming men of culture. That is a good deal, and at the same time very little, growled the philosopher. Just you think the matter over. Here are our benches. Let us discuss the question exhaustively. I shall not disturb your meditations with regard to how you are to become men of culture. I wish you success and points of view, as in your dueling questions." brand new, original, and enlightening points of view. The philosopher does not wish to prevent your philosophizing, but refrain at least from disconcerting him with your pistol shots. Try to imitate the Pythagoreans today. They, as servants of true philosophy, had to remain silent for five years. Possibly you may also be able to remain silent for five minutes, fifteen minutes, as servants of your own future culture, about which you seem so concerned. We had reached our destination. The solemnization of our rite began. As on the previous occasion five years ago, the Rhine was once more flowing beneath a light mist. The sky seemed bright, and the woods exhaled the same fragrance. We took our places on the farthest corner of the most distant bench. Sitting there, we were almost concealed, and neither the philosopher nor his companion could see our faces. We were alone. When the sound of the philosopher's voice reached us, it had become so blended with the rustling leaves and with the buzzing murmur of the myriads of living things inhabiting the wooded height that it almost seemed like the music of nature. As a sound, it resembled nothing more than a distant, monotonous plaint. 
we were indeed undisturbed. Some time elapsed in this way, and while the glow of sunset grew steadily paler, the recollection of our youthful undertaking in the cause of culture waxed even more vivid. It seemed to us as if we had owed the greatest debt of gratitude to that little society we had founded, for it had done more than merely supplement our public school training. It had actually been the only fruitful society we had had, and within its frame we even placed our public school life as a purely isolated factor helping us in our general efforts to attain culture. We knew this, that, thanks to our little society, no thought of embracing any particular career had ever entered our mind in those days. The all-too-frequent exploitation of youth by the state for its own purposes, that is to say, so that it may rear useful officials as quickly as possible and guarantee their unconditional obedience to it by means of excessively severe examinations, had remained quite foreign to our education, and to show how little we had actuated by thoughts of utility or by the prospect of speedy advancement and rapid success, on that day we were struck by the comforting consideration that, even then, we had not yet decided what we should be. We had not even troubled ourselves at all on this head. Our little society had sown the seeds of this happy indifference in our souls, and for it alone we were prepared to celebrate the anniversary of its foundation with hearty gratitude. I have already pointed out, I think, that in the eyes of the present age, which is so intolerant of anything that is not useful, such purposelessness, enjoyment of the moment, such a lulling of oneself in the cradle of the present, must seem almost incredible, and at all events blameworthy. How useless we were! and how proud we were of being useless. We used even to quarrel with each other as to which of us should have the glory of being the more useless. We wished to attach no importance to anything, to have strong views about nothing, to aim at nothing. We wanted to take no thought for the morrow, and desired no more than to recline comfortably, like good-for-nothings, on the threshold of the present. And we did. Bless us. That, ladies and gentlemen, was our standpoint then. Absorbed in these reflections, I was just about to give an answer to the question of the future of our educational institutions in the same self-sufficient way, when it gradually dawned upon me that the natural music, coming from the philosopher's bench, had lost its original character and traveled to us in a much more piercing and distinct tone than before. Suddenly, I became aware that I was listening, that I was eavesdropping, and was passionately interested, with both ears keenly alive to every sound. I nudged my friend, who was evidently somewhat tired, and whispered, Don't fall asleep. There's something for us to learn over there. It applies to us, even though it be not meant for us. For instance, I heard the younger of the two men defending himself with great animation, while the philosopher rebuked him with ever-increasing vehemence. You are unchanged, he cried to him. Unfortunately unchanged, it is quite incomprehensible to me how you can still be the same as you were seven years ago, when I saw you for the last time and left you with so much misgiving. I fear I must again divest you, however reluctantly, of the skin of modern culture which you have donned meanwhile. And what do I find beneath it? The same immutable, intelligible character, forsooth, according to Kant, but unfortunately the same unchanged intellectual character, too, which may also be necessity, though not a comforting one. I ask myself, to what purpose have I lived as a philosopher, if, possessed as you are of no mean intelligence and a genuine thirst for knowledge, all the years you have spent in my company have left no deeper impression upon you. At present, you are behaving as if you had not even heard the cardinal principle of all culture, which I went to such pains to inculcate upon you during your former intimacy. Tell me, what was that principle? 
I remember, replied the scolded pupil. You used to say no one would strive to attain culture if he knew how incredibly small the number of really cultured people actually is, and can ever be. And even this number of really cultured people would not be possible if a prodigious multitude, from reasons opposed to their nature and only led on by an alluring delusion, did not devote themselves to education. It were, therefore, a mistake publicly to reveal the ridiculous disproportion between the number of really cultured people and the enormous magnitude of the educational apparatus. Here lies the whole secret of culture, namely, that an innumerable host of men struggle to achieve it and work hard to that end ostensibly in their own interest whereas at bottom it is only in order that it may be possible for the few to attain it that is the principle said the philosopher and yet you could so far forget yourself as to believe that you are one of the few this thought has occurred to you i can see that however is the result of the worthless character of modern education the rights of genius are being democratized in order that people may be relieved of the labor of acquiring culture and the need of it everyone wants if possible to recline in the shade of the tree planted by genius and to escape the dreadful necessity of working for him so that his procreation may be made possible what are you too proud to be a teacher do you despise the thronging multitude of learners do you speak contemptuously of the teacher's calling and aping my mode of life would you fain live in solitary seclusion hostily isolated from that multitude do you suppose that you can reach at one bound what I ultimately had to win for myself only after long and determined struggles, in order even to be able to live like a philosopher? And do you not fear that solitude will wreak its vengeance upon you? Just try living the life of a hermit of culture. One must be blessed with overflowing wealth in order to live for the good of all on one's own resources. Extraordinary youngsters, they felt it incumbent upon them to imitate what is precisely most difficult of most high. What is possible only to the master, when they, above all, should know how difficult and dangerous this is, and how many excellent gifts may be ruined by attempting it? I will conceal nothing from you, sir, the companion replied. I have heard too much from your lips at odd times, and have been too long in your company to be able to surrender myself entirely to our present system of education and instruction. I am too painfully conscious of the disastrous error and abuses to which you used to call my attention though I very well know that I am not strong enough to hope for any success were I to struggle ever so valiantly against them. I was overcome by a feeling of general discouragement. My recourse to solitude was neither the result of pride nor arrogance. I would fain describe to you what I take to be the nature of the educational questions now attracting such enormous and pressing attention. It seemed to me that I must recognize two main directions in the forces at work, two seemingly antagonistic tendencies, equally deleterious in their action, and ultimately combining to produce their results, a striving to achieve the greatest possible expansion of education on one hand, and a tendency to minimize and weaken it on the other. The first named would, for various reasons, spread learning among the greatest number of people. The second would compel education to renounce its highest, noblest, and sublimest claims in order to subordinate itself to some other department of life, such as the service of the state. I believe I have already hinted at the quarter in which the cry for the greatest possible expansion of education is most loudly raised. This expansion belongs to the most beloved of the dogmas of modern political economy. As much knowledge and education as possible, therefore the greatest possible supply and demand. Hence, as much happiness as possible. That is the formula. In this case, utility is made the object and goal of education. Utility in the sense of gain. Greatest possible pecuniary gain. In the quarter now under consideration, culture would be defined as that point of vantage from which enables one to keep in the van of one's age. 
from which one can see all the easiest and best roads to wealth, and with which one controls all the means of communication between men and nations. The purpose of education, according to this scheme, would be to rear the most current men possible, current being used here in the sense in which it is applied to the coins of the realm. The greater the number of such men, the happier a nation will be. And this precisely is the purpose of our modern educational institutions, to help everyone, as far as his nature will allow, to become current, to develop him so that his particular degree of knowledge and science may yield him the greatest possible amount of happiness and pecuniary gain. Everyone must be able to form some sort of estimate of himself. He must know how much he may reasonably expect from life. The bond between intelligence and property, which this point of view postulates, has almost the force of a moral principle. In this quarter all culture is loathe which isolates, which sets goals beyond gold and gain, and which requires time. It is customary to dispose of such eccentric tendencies in education as systems of higher egotism, or of immoral culture, epicureanism. According to the morality reigning here, the demands are quite different. What is required above all is rapid education, so that a money-earning creature may be produced with all speed. There is even a desire to make this education so thorough that a creature may be reared that will be able to earn a great deal of money. Men are allowed only the precise amount of culture which is compatible with the interest of gain, but that amount, at least, is expected from them. In short, mankind has a necessary right to happiness on earth. That is why culture is necessary, but on that account alone. I must say something here, said the philosopher. In the case of view which you have described so clearly, there arises the great and awful danger that at some time or other the great masses may overleap the middle classes and spring headlong into this earthly bliss. That is what is now called the social question. It might seem to these masses that education for the greatest number of men was only a means to the earthly bliss of the few. The greatest possible expansion of education so enfeebles education that it can no longer confer privileges or inspire respect. The most general form of culture is simply barbarism, but I do not wish to interrupt your discussion. The companion continued, There are yet other reasons, besides this beloved economical dogma, for the expansion of education that is being striven after so valiantly everywhere. In some countries, the fear of religious oppression is so general, and the dread of its results so marked, that people in all classes of society long for culture and eagerly absorb those elements of it which are supposed to scatter the religious instincts. Elsewhere, the state, in its turn, strives here and there for its own preservation, after the greatest possible expansion of education, because it always feels strong enough to bring the most determined emancipation resulting from culture under its yoke, and readily approves of everything which tends to extend culture, provided that it be a service to its officials or soldiers, but in the main to itself, in its competition with other nations. In this case, the foundations of a state must be sufficiently broad and firm to constitute a fitting counterpart to the complicated arches of culture which it supports, just as in the first case the traces of some former religious tyranny must still be felt for people to be driven to such desperate remedies. Thus, wherever I hear the masses raise the cry for an expansion of education, I am wont to ask myself whether it is stimulated by a greedy lust of gain and property, by the memory of a former religious persecution, or by the prudent egotism of the state itself. On the other hand, it seems to me that there was yet another tendency, not so clamorous, perhaps, but quite as forcible, which, hailing from various quarters, was animated by a different desire, the desire to minimize and weaken education. 
In all cultivated circles, people are in the habit of whispering to one another something after this style. That it is a general fact that, owing to the present frantic exploitation of the scholar in the service of his science, his education becomes every day more accidental and more uncertain. For the study of science has been extended to such interminable lengths that he who, though not exceptionally gifted, yet possesses fair abilities, will need to devote himself exclusively to one branch and ignore all others if he ever wished to achieve anything in his work. Should he, then, elevate himself above the herd by means of his specialty, he still remains one of them in regard to all else, that is to say, in regard to all the most important things in life. Thus, a specialist in science gets to resemble nothing so much as a factory workman who spends his whole life in turning one particular screw or handle on a certain instrument or machine, at which occupation he acquires the most consummate skill. In Germany, where we know how to drape such painful facts with the glorious garments of fancy, this narrow specialization on the part of our learned men is even admired, and their even greater deviation from the path of true culture is regarded as a moral phenomenon. Fidelity in small things, dogged faithfulness, become expressions of the highest eulogy, and the lack of culture outside the specialty is flaunted abroad as a sign of noble sufficiency. For centuries, it has been an understood thing that one alluded to scholars alone when one spoke of cultured men, but experience tells us that it would be difficult to find any necessary relation between the two classes today. For at present, the exploitation of a man for the purpose of science is accepted everywhere without the slightest scruple. Who still ventures to ask, what may be the value of a science which consumes its minions in this vampire fashion? The division of labor in science is practically struggling towards the same goal which religions in certain parts of the world are consciously striving after. That is to say, towards the decrease and even the destruction of learning. That, however, which, in the case of certain religions, is a perfectly justifiable aim, both in regard to their origin and their history, can only amount to self-immolation when transferred to the realm of science. In all matters of a general and serious nature, and above all, in regard to the highest philosophical problems, we have now already reached a point at which the scientific man, as such, is no longer allowed to speak. On the other hand, that adhesive and tenacious stratum which has now filled up the interstices between the sciences, journalism, believes it is a mission to fulfill here, and this it does, according to its own particular lights, that is to say, as its name implies, after the fashion of a day-laborer. It is precisely in journalism that the two tendencies combine and become one. The expansion and the diminution of education here join hands. The newspaper actually steps into the place of culture, and he who, even as a scholar, wishes to voice any claim for education must avail himself of this vicious stratum of communication which cements the seams between all forms of life, all classes, all arts, and all sciences, and which is as firm and reliable as newspaper is. In the newspaper, the peculiar educational aims of the present culminate, just as the journalist, the servant of the moment, has stepped into the place of the genius, of the leader for all time, of the deliverer from the tyranny of the moment. Now, tell me, distinguished master, what hopes could I still have in a struggle against the general topsy-turvification of all genuine aims for education? With what courage can I, a single teacher, step forward, when I know that the moment any seeds of real culture are sown, they will be mercilessly crushed by the ruler of this pseudo-culture. 
Imagine how useless the most energetic work on the part of the individual teacher must be, who would fain lead a pupil back into the distant and evasive Hellenic world and to the real home of culture, when in less than an hour that same pupil will have a recourse to a newspaper, the latest novel, or one of those learned books, the very style of which already bears the revolting impress of modern barbaric culture. Now silence a minute, interjected the philosopher in a strong and sympathetic voice. I understand you now, and ought never to have spoken so crossly to you. You are altogether right, save in your despair. I shall now proceed to say a few words of consolation. End of First Lecture, Part 2